There we go. Okay, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and keep it rolling this morning. If you're in the back and are looking for a seat, as always, the splash zone here in the front is open. So there, there's some spaces up here if you're looking for, uh, looking for a seat. And so you guys know we are, uh, we are searching for a bigger space for us, that we're, we're sensing that this place is getting full and uh, are, are thankful for you kind of bearing with us as we figure that out. But uh, as you guys know, we are in a new sermon series and we are working our way through the book of Genesis. We believe that this book is actually incredibly relevant for us here today because this book was written to people who were asking a lot of questions. The people who first received Genesis were asking questions like, who am I? Where am I going? What will I do when I get there? Am I gonna be okay? They were asking questions like, who are we? How are we connected and how do we live together? And how do we interact with this larger world that at times can feel scary and threatening? These people were asking the question, uh, who is God or who are the gods and which one should I worship? They were asking, how do I know him? How do I know he cares about me? And if he does care about me, why has life been so hard? Do any of those questions sound familiar to you? Have you ever asked any of those questions? Maybe can I get some hands? Has anyone ever asked any of those questions? Maybe currently asking some of those questions? Some of you are still asleep. That's okay. Okay. Uh, Because those are questions that we are all asking, right? And Genesis was written to people who were asking those questions. And so when we come to Genesis, we want to hear, Lord, what do you have to say to us uh, through what you gave to these people? Genesis, it was written to a people, the Israelites, who had just come out of slavery. They were, they'd been kind of subsumed into this alien culture, this alien religious system. They had been dehumanized, oppressed. There was essentially cultural genocide was what the Egyptians were attempting to perpetrate on the Israelites to get them to forget who they were, what they had come from, and what made them unique as a people. And after 400 years of this, uh, their, their perception of who they were, uh, it was pretty confused. And so what Moses says to them is, hey, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story that's going to help answer and begin to answer some of those questions that you have. We talked about this quote last week. There's a Scottish philosopher who says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part Alistair McIntyre, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? So Moses says to the Israelites, let me tell you a story. And he gives them this origin story that starts with uh, the words, in the beginning. And this origin story, that was the origin story for the, for the people of God, the Israelites, is our origin story, because it's the origin story of humanity. In the beginning. And knowing the purpose of Genesis, how it connects to us, it it helps us appreciate it for what it is and it helps us know what questions to bring to the text. It also is critical for us understanding this book that we also bring so many other questions to, right? Like, what about the dinosaurs? Have you ever wondered that, you know? How do the dinosaurs fit into this? Uh, And our goal is, this isn't, 
I want you to just set aside for a moment um, the like, uh, the Holy Bible Land theme park idea, where like we're gonna go and see the ark and its creation and, and get all of the details and all of the answers to all of our myriad of scientific questions for how the universe began. That is not the primary concern of Genesis. Genesis is telling us, God's communicating to us a true story about what happened and where we've come from. And in that sense, Genesis is historical, but that helps us shape our expectations that what we find here is not a science textbook. Genesis is way less interested in the results of the scientific method than we are. We are a people who are, who are so biased toward facts. And what we often believe, what we default to believing, is that if we can just get more facts, then we'll finally have all the facts we need to live the life that we want to lead. That's the promise of chat GTP, right? All the facts in the world at your fingertips. But Chat GTP cannot answer the question, who am I? Or why am I here? Or how do we live together? All it's gonna do if you ask it that question, I should have done that this week. That would have been a great sermon illustration. Ah, next time. Uh, all it's gonna give you if you ask it that question is a scrape through of what Google has to say about that question. So, so when we come to Genesis, it, it's not giving us the, the results table of a scientific paper or even the abstract, which is all anybody reads anyway. It's not giving us that. It's giving us a narrative story, a narrative history that's helping us answer some of these big questions that we are asking. Who am I? Where are we going? Is it going to be okay? How do we live together? And even the kind of history that it's giving us, this narrative history, is different than the history that we expect because the history that you and I were raised on uh, comes with the question, is this date going to be on the test, right? When you and I were in history class, that was the question we trained ourselves to ask, which just as someone who loves history is so sad because history is such a beautiful story. But so often we're taught it by textbooks that make us think it's, again, just about a discrete facts that we're putting together on a timeline. And Genesis is so much more than that. It's a, it's a beautifully constructed narrative and story that's teaching us our history and who we are. Guys, this, uh, this book, and especially the chapter that we are in this morning, it is entirely unique in all of the literature of the ancient world. And historians, uh, archaeologists, people who study this period of time will all admit that that while they can kind of pull out pieces of, oh, like this piece of Genesis 1 is similar to this thing or similar to that thing, that what they all also have to say is it is unique. That it's not, uh, it's not this epic poem, although there are pieces of it that are poetic, and it's not a straight historical narrative because it's highly stylized and very artistic. It's this beautiful piece of ancient literature one of the commentators I was reading this week, he just points this out as one of, one of the ways that we see this. He says, the introductory verse, the section is divided after the introductory verse, what we read last week. The section, this section of creation, is divided into seven paragraphs, each of which appertains to one of seven days. And he goes on to say, each of the three nouns that occur in the first verse express the basic concepts of the, of the section, God, heavens, and earth, are repeated a number of times that are multiples of seven. Thus, the name of God occurs 35 times. 
That is seven times five. Earth, 21 times, three times seven. Heavens appears 21 times. The terms light and day are found in all seven times in the first paragraph, and there are seven references to light in the fourth paragraph. Water is mentioned seven times. In the fifth and sixth paragraphs, the word for living beast occurs seven times. The expression, it was good, appears seven times. The first verse has seven words. It goes on and on and on and on. And the purpose of, the, of the, the commentator going through all of this is just to show us that this is a highly stylized, very artistic account of creation. And the form that it takes, it teaches us about what God is attempting to communicate to us through his word. That he's not only giving us facts, but he's enlivening our hearts. He's calling us to appreciate the beauty of his creation. He's inviting us into awe. That's the purpose of this narrative. And when we recognize that, what that gives us freedom to do is to recognize that there are different ways that we can come to and interpret this text. Like there's been a lot of debate, for example, around what does the word yom, which is the Hebrew word for day, right? What does day actually mean here? Some people think yom means Literally, it's 24 hours. So each of these periods is just seven 24-hour days. Other people think that this word yom, uh, it has to do with epics of time. So when God says day in Genesis 1, they think, okay, he's referring to these like large chunks of time, right? Like ages in the earth, which would help you kind of uh, reconcile this with an understanding that the earth is a lot older than maybe would first appear when you read through Genesis. And other people would say, okay, this word yom is actually an analogy that God is using our language to help communicate a concept to us that would otherwise be impossible for us to grasp on our own. And so it's an analogy. It's an analogical way of understanding the text. Okay. Um, I'm not gonna give you the 100% the correct answer this morning. What I'm trying to do is to show you there are all kinds of ways to come to this text and to read it in a way that is faithful to the truth of scripture and yet admit there's so much about this that we don't know. And one day, the promise is that one day all of this will fit together for us. But that right now we've gotta have some humility when we come to the text to recognize that our understanding of the, of the world that we live in is incomplete. And there's a danger for us if what we try to do is to harmonize the scriptures with our current scientific understanding and say, look, see, it fits perfectly, which means the Bible is now true. Because what happens is that our scientific understanding changes. Like, even if you go back just like five decades, okay, uh, the, the predominant understanding of the way the universe came into being, it was, or the theory of the universe was a steady state theory of the universe. Now, I'm not a scientist, but I was just, my basic understanding is that it, like, it, it came into being as is. And the, the main, like, theory that that was kind of battling against was the Big Bang Theory. Fifty years later, the scientific consensus on that has totally flipped, right, to the point where I didn't even know there was an alternate theory that was supposed 50 years ago. And the point of that is just to say that if we were to take the scriptures and say, look, look how it perf perfectly fits with the science of the 1970s, what we would find is that it doesn't perfectly fit with the science of today because our understanding of the world is changing. And so as we come to the text, right, I'll just encourage you, bring your questions. What happened to the dinosaurs? 
I also, like I said, am so curious, okay? Bring the questions, absolutely. Bring the doubts to the text, absolutely. And come with the humility to admit that there are pieces of our understanding that aren't fully formed yet. Even our understanding of God and his word and what he means in it isn't fully formed. Although we do believe he speaks to us clearly about things we can understand. Come with the hope that one day we are gonna see how all of these things fit together. That we come then to, be, to learn and to be shaped by the truth that God is giving us in this story. We come to worship the God who does know even when we don't. Okay, so that's the setup for this morning. So I'm gonna invite Mary Bloom to come up. Mary is gonna read our text for us. Uh, we're in Genesis 1, and we'll be in verses 3 through 25. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip there. It will also be up here on the screen. You can kind of follow along as Mary is reading for us. Here we go. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse, and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. <clears throat> the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let there be signs for, be signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swam according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, as we, as, Jesus, I just confess, uh, the insufficiency of my own words when encountering this part of your word. Lord, that we are about to spend 15 or 20 minutes unpacking uh, your creation of the universe. And we recognize before you, Lord, how insufficient 
not I am for that, Lord, how insufficient we are in our minds to wrap them around uh, the magnitude of what you are communicating to us. And so we ask that through your Holy Spirit uh, that you'd be waking up our hearts, our minds, to just uh, one more piece of that this morning. Would you be inviting us in not to understand everything about you, Lord, this morning, uh, but into wonder for who you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, so what this passage is shouting to us is that God's powerful word brings life. So that is our one point this morning. Okay, we are gonna get out of here. Yes, okay. God's powerful word brings life. And in verses three through five of our passage, we get kind of a, a pattern or a structure that reoccurs all throughout this narrative as God describes the creation on each day. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. There was evening, there was morning, the first day, day one. In those verses, there are seven different uh, kind of structures in those verses that get pulled out and get repeated in different ways. One of the, one of the big things that reoccurs in each day is this idea that God says, and there was. So can I get my first slide up here? So I just want you to visually kind of see how this is spread out in the text. Everywhere where there is highlighting is a place where God says, and then it was so. So God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be, and it was so. God said, 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 and God created, and God said, and it was so. Over and over and over and over again. And what the author of this text is communicating to us through this repetition is that when God speaks, what he speaks happens. That's how powerful God's word is, that God's word is his will and action. I'm trying to think about, like, well, what is this like? How, how do we kind of wrap our minds around this? It's like when you go to a restaurant. Like this last week, we went to Once Upon a Time in France for the first time and got the creme brulee there. Wow, so tasty. Okay, so uh, what I told the waitress was, I would like to order the creme Well, actually, I said, what do you think I should order? And she said, you should get the creme brulee. So I said, yes, I will have that. Uh, and then it came out, right? So my words to say, I would like this thing, eventually brought that thing in front of me. There's a sense in which my words cause something to happen. That is true about our words in the world, that when we speak them, things happen. But what we know about me placing that order is that it went through a long chain of events to get there, right? That I gave the order to the waitress, who gave it to the chef, who gave it to the person who makes the desserts, who took the little torch and blew it on the top, right? So there's like a series of steps along the way. And they could provide that for me because there were already materials in the back that allowed them to create the thing that I had asked for. So I did not create anything. I just asked for it. Right? So that shows you the contrast between uh, us and between God. While our words can cause things to happen in the world, there is no mediating force between, between God's words and what happens. There is nothing in this narrative that carries out God's commands. He speaks and it happens. He speaks and material comes into existence. So we talk about creation ex nihilo, creation from nothing. God speaks and there it is. That God's word is his will. 
and that when God speaks, it does not encounter any tension in the universe, at least here in the creation story. Right, one of the other things I say in my house sometimes is uh, let's clean up this room or clean up this room. There are times where that command encounters resistance, right? So a half hour later, after some back and forth, some cajoling, some time out, okay, we finally get to the place that we want to go. But there's a will that opposes, shocking, opposes my will in the cleaning of our living room. That does not happen in this creation story. There is no force that opposes God's will. God speaks and it happens and it overcomes no opposition, which helps us again shape our worldview of who God is and what this universe is like. What it banishes from our thought is any kind of duality in the world, any sense of yin and yang, of this equally balanced tau between good and evil. What it says is that God is ultimate and that his power is ultimate. that there is nothing that can rival God's creative force in our world, that when God speaks, it comes into being. That by itself, though, could be a very fearful thing. A God who has that kind of power, we have to wonder, is that God good? And what this scripture shouts for us is yes! Our God is good. Let me get our next slide here. So you can see all of these places that we've still got the highlights from where God says and it comes to be, but what you see highlighted in yellow is God saying that his creation is good. And God saw that the light was good. And God saw that it 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 was good. And that last paragraph, what does it say? And God saw that it was good over and over and over and over again. What the author is showing us is that what God has created is good. And there's, guys, there's so much packed into this, right? Uh, When we think about good, we think about it often as a bubble on one of those surveys that you get after every phone call or customer interaction you have ever. Was the service bad? Was it good? Or was it great? So good is like this kind of middling category. It was fine, right? That's another like way of saying it was good. God is not saying that here. God is not saying it was fine, but it could have been a little bit better. God is saying it was good. He's taking this for us from this place of moral neutrality as if the creation itself is simply a thing that has happened. And he's saying, no, this universe is not morally neutral. It's not even bad. That what is true about our world is it is good that our world, the beauty of creation, it reflects, it shouts out God's character. When the text tells us that it is good, what it's saying is that everything that God has created is a reflection of his character. And again, one of the ways that God is different from us is when we walk into our houses, we see all of the things that are wrong with our houses, right? Like at our old house, we got blinds. And the blinds, Uh, were like a shade off of the color of the trim around the windows. And guys, every time I walked, maybe not every time, but most of the times that I walked in the door, the sun was coming in just right. What did I see? The mismatch of the color between the blinds and the trim, right? Do you have things in your house like that? There's no one else? Okay. That when we see our work, what we often see is the flaws in our work. God doesn't see those. 
When God created the world, he didn't see the flaws in his work. What he saw is that his work was perfect. It was good. It was a perfect reflection of his character. And while we may forget that, the trees that God has created, they haven't forgotten. The rocks that he has created, they haven't forgotten. That's why the scriptures tell us that if we were silent about the glory of God, the trees and the rocks, that everything in creation would shout it out. In fact, it is all shouting it out right now. This is what John Calvin has to say about this. John Calvin is dead. He's very old, but he had a lot of things to say about God, okay? He said, yet, in the first place, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. You cannot in one glance survey this most vast and beautiful system of the universe in its wide expanse without being completely overwhelmed by the boundless force of its brightness. That everything in creation is shouting out the glory of God. And against every cosmology that would tell us that we are here by some kind of accident, be it happy or otherwise, this narrative shouts out, no! that this world that God has created was intricately planned. Even in the pattern of the days, you see this, in the first three days, what God does is God creates, uh, God creates a canvas, these, these places that he then fills up. In day one, God speaks and there's light and God separates the light and the darkness. Then in the second day, God separates the, the, the sky from the seas. In the th- In the third day, he separates the seas and the land that God is making space. And then he comes in, and then in days four, five, and six, he fills those spaces. So in day four, what God does is he places the sun and the moon in the sky. And guys, just for the record, the Hebrews who who first read this and Moses who first wrote it, he knows that light comes from the sun, okay? Like, well, how, does this, how can this be true? Because the light existed before the sun. Moses knew that, okay? He's, again, telling us something bigger than that, that God then fills this sky that he's created. The land and the seas and the air that he's created, God fills those. The land that he's created, he fills it with life. That God's perfect, powerful word, it brings life. It fills up the creation with life. Life that he then tells, go and multiply. That life, bring more life. wow is the appropriate reaction to that. One of my friends, his, uh, his favorite icebreaker is the question, uh, he says, okay, let me set up a situation for you. So I'm gonna set it up for you. I'm gonna steal this from him. Uh, he says, imagine you pull up to your house and there are a whole bunch of cars in front of it. And you recognize all of the cars. Okay, what do you think it is? Is it a surprise party or is it an intervention? <laughs> like, oh wow, this could tell you a lot about a person, right? The way that you answer that question. Uh, how many of you would say surprise party? Okay, how many of you would say maybe it's an intervention, right? <laughs> maybe you would say, oh, what did I forget? Right? What did I forget that I had committed to that was happening at my house that now I am late for? 
And, and we joke about, well, is it a surprise party or isn't it an intervention? But what, what is so often true about our lives, guys, is uh, we are so rarely surprised that what is true about our lives is that many of us, all of us, I think to some extent, have gotten to a point where we can be so kind of world-weary that we, there's nothing that surprises us. At least there is nothing good that surprises us. Right? Yeah, we are surprised when the check engine light comes on. And I'm always surprised at how long the doctor's office takes. I'm surprised when there's conflict or when there's betrayal in my life. I'm surprised at the diagnosis or the death. But there are very few things in my life that I find surprising that are good news to me. that what I expect is the intervention. That the idea of surprise, what it often stirs up in me, is fear. That's why none of us answer our phones on the first phone call. I don't want to deal with this right now. Whatever it is, I don't have time for it, right? What this passage tells us is that the world that God has created is good. The world he's created is good and the work that he is still doing in our world is good. And as Christians, we can look at the world as a dark and a scary and a fearful place and yes, there are ways that that is true and yet this, even this broken world still reflects the glory and the wonder of God. There is still goodness in it because God is still at work in it. And what it calls us to tune into is the wonder, the ongoing wonder of God's ongoing creative work in our world. This is guy, Jake Medor, he has this to say about the surprise and the wonder, the beauty that we encounter. He says, the lovely things we encounter in the world are beautiful in themselves, of course, but we should also discern something behind them, the faint echo of God's voice speaking the world into being. It's not just the thing, we, the thing itself we adore, whether it's the smile of a baby, the ominous sound of thunder, the beauty of a bird's song. Uh, it's, it's the shadow lingering behind that thing just beyond our gaze. That's what we love. That what this passage is doing is it's tuning our hearts, it's creating in us the expectation that God would surprise us, will surprise us with his goodness in the world that as we take a step back and simply look at creation, that there are things that would surprise us. Like when you walk out, when you walked out of your house the other day and, and all of the branches of the trees were covered in ice, oh, that was beautiful. That when uh, my baby woke up at like 5.45 and I had to get up with him and I had this uninterrupted, unplanned time to hold my infant in my arms, just me and him. Nothing to do but just look at you. What a gift. The wonder of that. That we would even be surprised by the work that God is doing in our hearts and in each other. That there are moments where we can step back and if we have the eyes to see what we see, and one of the, it's one of my favorite things about being your pastor is getting to see the things that God is growing in you. That is the work that our God is doing. 
even more than that. Guys, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What Paul is telling us is the same God who spoke the world into being, who brought light into the darkness, is the same God who sheds his own light into our hearts, but into the darkness of our lives and our own, of our own souls, that God has spoken and that he has brought light to us. And that God bringing light in that darkness is just as miraculous, Paul is saying, as God bringing light in the darkness of the universe. And what that light allows us to see is the glory of God, the beauty of God, the awe of God, the splendor of God in the face of Jesus. Which raises the question, what do you see when you look at the face of Jesus? When you see Jesus and you see Jesus looking at you, what do you see? In Luke 22, in the midst of this account of Jesus' arrest and betrayal, in the midst of Peter denying Jesus, the author of Luke says, about an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. He's talking about Peter. Someone is accusing Peter of being with Jesus. And Peter replied, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And it says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then in the midst of all this craziness that is happening with Peter, with Jesus' trial, and as Peter is denying Jesus, there's this moment where perhaps Jesus is passing through a hallway and looks through a portico, and just as Peter is denying Jesus, Jesus makes eye contact with him. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. What do you think Peter saw on our Lord's face in that moment? I'll tell you what we most often tell ourselves. The picture that we naturally imagine as people. What we naturally imagine is that uh, Jesus gives Peter the shame lips he shakes his head. That Jesus' face toward Peter is condemning. That as people, that is our most natural reaction, our most natural reading of this text. But the face, but, but when the light of God has shone in our hearts, when he's brought light to darkness, when he's allowed us to see in the face of Jesus the glory of God, what we know is in Jesus' face because what we know throughout the scripture is that what is written there is love that when Peter sees Jesus in the midst of his denial, in the midst of his betrayal of Jesus, what Peter is greeted with in the face of Jesus is love. That he is met with grace and with mercy and he goes out then and he whips, weeps bitterly. That Peter is surprised by the intervention 
by this confrontation with Jesus. And what, what, sh- what happens is that when Peter looks in Jesus' face and he sees love, what he becomes aware of is his own sin. What it brings out of him is repentance. What it brings out of Peter is this confession, oh Lord, I have lived out of line with what I know is true about you. That you are the God of the universe who created everything and even though the rocks and the trees have not forgotten that, I forget it and I have lived away from you. I have lived trying to deny that reality and seeing love in the face of Jesus, it gives us the freedom and the confidence to finally take off the blinders, to have the blinders taken off of us and to admit to ourselves and to other people, I am far more messed up than I want you to know. That's what happens when we encounter the love of Jesus. And yet we know that the story of Jesus and Peter doesn't end here. That Jesus comes to Peter on a beach and he restores him. He asks him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. That from that repentance, what is then brought to us is confidence that we can have in the love of God. That Peter is expressing what he has experienced and what is true about him, that he loves God because Jesus has shown his love for him. It calls him into freedom, the freedom of the children of God, that Peter gets to walk into that afterwards as a leader in the church who doesn't do it all right but is following Jesus and leading others into that. But that is what we are called into as the children of God, that our repentance is, is an intervention, yes, but that intervention in itself becomes a surprise party. Because what we are greeted with there, once we are confronted with our sin, is the great and abounding love and mercy of our God who is poured out through his word, who is Jesus. That the love that is expressed there, the grace and the mercy, the sacrifice on our behalf that brings us back to God, that was God's will brought into motion in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's that Jesus that invites us to the table. And it makes communion, makes what we're doing this morning so appropriate. That as we take these elements in our hands, what we are reminded of is the love that we know that God has for us. That in coming to the communion table, we aren't coming to get something new from God. We are being called back into the, sa- the sanity of what we know is true. That Jesus has already given everything from us, for us. And so we're invited to come to him and to confess, to lay it all down before him all of our guilt, all of our shames, all of our shoulds, all of our coulds, all of our I wish I hads or I wish I had nots, to bring all of those things and lay them down at his feet. And to see even there the love of God reflected back to us in the face of our Jesus. We lay those things down and what we pick up and remember is God's love for us and it frees us then to worship and to witness, to celebrate and to move in confidence that we have because we have been called the children of God. Okay, so as we come to the table, uh, well first I'm gonna invite you, you can fold down your kneelers if you want. We're gonna do this a little bit differently this morning. Uh, I'm gonna uh, talk about the elements and then we'll just give you the next three songs to take the elements kind of whatever you want. 
she'll get the chance to kind of have, just have some space of quiet and there'll be some singing going on to reflect, to interact with the Lord, to lay down all of those things and to pick up his love for you. And as we come to the table, uh, I, guys, I have to warn you because the scriptures have a warning when we come to the Lord's table. And that what that warning says is that if there are places in your heart where you are saying to the Lord, you cannot shine your light there, or I will not see what you are trying to show me, this table is not for you right now. What it says is you need to deal with that place first because what love does is love takes all of us and to hold back a part of ourselves from Jesus is to, is to not be engaging in the relationship that he's called us to. There's also a warning that if you are here this morning and you uh, are not in Christ, man, first of all, we are so glad that you're here. Thank you for joining us this morning. And we look forward to the day when you will get to take this, we'll get to take this together with you, but today isn't that day. This is for people who have embraced the fact, who have experienced God coming and shedding his light into their hearts and seeing love in the face of Jesus, a love that calls us to repentance and to walking in the freedom of the children of God. And so I would invite you this morning to pray, to ask God to shed that light in your heart, to bring you to the place of repentance and freedom as you encounter love in the face of Jesus. So again, I'm gonna walk us through these elements, what Jesus has to say about them, and then you'll have a chance to kind of take them when you want, when you're ready over the course of these next two or three songs. So our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread or you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. Uh, thank you for your word. Lord, your word that is powerful and your word that breathes life, Lord. We thank you that your word has come and has breathed new life into us, that you have brought us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. And Lord, as we come and remember and celebrate that this morning at your table, Lord, would you take uh, this little piece of bread, Lord, this little grape juice, and would you strengthen us with it? Would you fill us with it? Would you give us the courage that we need to come to lay down our sin, our guilt, our shame before you, Lord, and to pick up the love and the freedom that you have for us in your son? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.